Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The host and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guests on the show today are Corey Henniger and Jeff Farenbrook, the co-portfolio managers at Oakview Capital. Oakview is an SEC-registered Dallas-based investment firm that was started in 2010. Jeff and Corey bring a unique lens into value investing, and I enjoyed talking to them about how decisions are made at Oakview given the co-PM structure, the types of companies they look to invest in, portfolio construction, including position sizing, how they use checklists within their process, and some unique metrics they use to determine business quality. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Jeff and Corey from Oakview Capital. Whenever I see co-portfolio managers, I put my allocator hat on and think about decision-making. Can you talk about how portfolio decisions are made given the structure? Yeah, the, the key for us is that we're on the same page in regards to investment philosophy process and then how we build the portfolio. So, so Jeff and I have known each other for well over 20 years, have a long personal and professional history together. Uh, we started our investment careers working together, uh, worked at separate firms for a while, but even through those 18 years or so, we commonly owned similar stocks in our portfolios and bounced ideas off of each other. And most importantly, when we got back together four years ago, we made a commitment to each other to, uh, to do a thorough review of past successes and mistakes that we had made in our investment career we built that into our confidence checklist, which has become the foundation for our investment process. And we made a commitment then that that is going to be the foundation for our process by which we make decisions, how we filter stocks that we're going to focus on and build in our watch list. And so we've got a shared commitment and buy-in on that. Um, and then another thing we say early on in the research process as we're looking at interesting stock ideas is that the good ideas should be really obvious to both of us and be stand out on the front end of the research process. So we collaborate early and often in the research. We have different uh, styles and approaches that we will take in the research process. By, but by collaborating early and often, there's a lot of buy-in on the front end. Got it. And how do you guys handle disagreements? Or, I mean, what, what, what does it look like when one of you thinks you should buy, one of you thinks you maybe shouldn't buy? Like, what, what, is, the, what is the process for working through stuff like that? Well, that's the debate process that we go through and coming up with a, a new business to put on our watch list. But really, it comes down to if at the end of the debate, if we don't think that it's a great idea, then we just move on to the next idea. Got it. And so we're going to talk a lot more about the confidence checklist, and I want to I want to hear more about that. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm interested in the dynamics associated with the kind of like a co-portfolio manager I recently listened to an interesting Freakonomics radio podcast that talked about the virtues of having co-CEOs. What would you guys say are the benefits of having two PMs in this structure? Well, we would think that two is better than one as long as we're both fully aligned. And, and that's the, the importance of us being fully aligned in the same investment process and approach. Uh, 
I think the other thing is about Jeff and I is that we each have unique strengths that we bring to the table. And because of having such a long history together, uh, personally and professionally, we, we respect each other enough to challenge each other. We have a saying here that these are our stocks, not our kids. Uh, between mm-hmm. our partners, we have 11 kids uh, and all of our kids are really close and our families are tight. Uh, so we're never going to pick on each other's kids, but we are certainly going to poke holes in each other's stocks and have a healthy debate over it. And so, you know, we bring different strengths to the table. Uh, I tend to be the firm's uh, optimist. At least that's what Jeff tells me. Um, I tend to be more of a big picture uh, thinker and a little bit more creative and thinking about what companies might be over mm-hmm. time, uh, thinking through the upside scenarios. Uh, Jeff is more the firm's uh, resident skeptic. Uh, he has a saying that management is guilty uh, until the numbers say otherwise. So he's, he's very particular on making sure that the numbers match management's narrative and, and holding them to the fire. And so we, we each bring these different perspectives to the table. And we think that as long as we're on the same page, which we are, then, then two is better than one. I like the uh, optimist and worrier on the same team. I think, <laughs> I, like, I think if you have two worriers and two optimists, like there's, there's more, there's more room for making investment mistakes. And so Jeff, you joined in March of 2020, good timing there. What was that like in the onset of COVID and the world shutting down when you started? Like how, what was that onboarding process and integration process? How was that impacted by the external events that were happening? Yeah, it, it was a, a crazy time. I joined March 2nd of 2020. And so less than two weeks later, we were all about to leave for a, a spring break key tr- ski trip together. And Vail just announced it was closing its ski areas because of COVID. So we had planned to be out of the office for a week, and it turned out to be about six months. But the, uh, the clearest memory I have is that my wife and I had just traded offices in our house since I was going to be going into the, the Oakview offices. And so she took the big office in the house, and I moved my stuff into what I'd describe as a, a small closet in the kitchen. And so my clearest memory is working 18 hours a day for the next several months in a small closet trying to find opportunities and what turned out to be uh, an amazing buying opportunity. We did get a lot of questions from clients, though, about how we were going to integrate a new partner when we couldn't be in the office together. But when they heard the long personal and professional background between our team, I think they realized we would not miss a beat. You know, we all met over 30 years ago through junior and college golf and and uh Corey and i started our career together so we had a long history before i even joined that's a great story uh so you've already mentioned the confidence checklist i think we should jump right in and understand as we start to kind of understand the process i i'm a big fan of checklists i use a bunch of them um and so maybe talk about the confidence checklist and how it's actually used within the process Sure. Well, when Corey and I came back together at Oakview, we had had two decades of experience under our belt. And so we decided to do a mid-career review of all the successes and the mistakes that we had made. And the, the common themes that came out of that review, those are what became the foundation for our confidence checklist. And we used the confidence checklist to focus our efforts on, on building out a watch list of really great businesses that we can understand Then we follow them closely for a long time until we get a controversy that gives us the chance to buy a great business at a great price. Uh, Just to go through it, there's six items that we have on the list, and the first two are the most important for us. 
a dominant industry business model and compounder. With the dominant industry business model, we're asking ourselves, does this business have a durable competitive advantage? And then with compounder, we're looking for businesses in growing industries that can generate above average returns on capital. So we, we like to say there's no price at which we would buy rotten food. There is also no valuation at which we are interested in a bad business in a declining industry. And the first two items, those keep our focus on great businesses with durable advantages and growing industries. The third is control of destiny. Um, is management in control of the key drivers that will create long-term shareholder value? You know, we want to make sure that if we're right on our thesis, then we'll make money in the long run. So we tend to avoid areas where factors that are outside of management's control can overwhelm a company's progress. Um, for example, we, we avoid oil and gas producers. You can have the best acreage, the best geologist, and the most efficient operations. But if the price of oil falls from 80 to 40, then you'll lose money in the stock. Uh, the fourth item is management. Uh, we look for stable management teams with stable business strategies. In general, we think changes in strategies are red flags. Uh, we also want alignment between management skill set and what the business needs, but also alignment with shareholders in their stock ownership and their incentive compensation metrics. Uh, the fifth is financial strength. You know, great businesses, they only trade down to great prices because of big controversies, and sometimes these take a while to fix. So we want to make sure that we keep time on our side and make sure that they have a balance sheet that's strong enough with good liquidity to make it through the controversy without diluting its shareholders. And then the last item on the list is ESG, but we don't use it the way that most companies do. We don't have, use it as a negative screening tool. Uh, instead, we look for companies where ESG factors are driving positive growth in their business. So you know, we own Ball Corporation. It's the world's largest aluminum packaging manufacturer. Ball's growth is actually accelerating because consumer product companies are shifting from plastic and glass containers to aluminum packaging because it helps them to meet their own recycled content goals. But you know, you asked how we use it within our process, and I think that is something that really sets Oakview apart. You know, everyone says they want to buy great businesses at great prices, but in reality, that's really difficult to do because we are all human and our behavioral biases can get in the way. You know, we are just as susceptible to these biases as anyone else, but we have spent a lot of time designing a a way to implement the confidence checklist to help protect ourselves from our own biases. So we use the confidence checklist to do business reviews rather than recommendations. And with our review process, we were asking ourselves, should this be on our watch list to follow going forward rather than trying to look for stock recommendations by asking you know, this is the stock is now cheap. It's just shown up on our screen. So let's run it through our checklist and see if we should buy it today. And one example of how this protects us is that, you know, I mentioned great businesses. They only trade down to great prices because of really big, scary controversies. And so if you're doing your research for the first time in the middle of the controversy because the stock finally looks cheap, recency bias is probably going to scare you away. 
But with our review approach, you know, we've completed our review and watched the business through good times and bad. And that gives us a much more balanced historical perspective. So we're less likely to be scared away by the, the recent bad news. And you use the word controversy. That, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone describe an investment opportunity in that way. When I think of controversy, I think of like CEOs getting fired for you know embezzling money. My guess is that's not what you're you're talking about. What I, we'll talk a little bit about ideas and mistakes in the fact yeah. that you've made. But I'm I'm interested in like what what does a controversy consist of typically um, within you know given given what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, we could use a lot of different words to describe it. But what we mean by controversy, it can be in a couple buckets. Um, it can be a company specific speed bump. You know, that's what gave us the chance to buy a ball when the business suffered from several problems uh, from the volatility and demand during COVID that really upset their working capital to unusually big swings and costs that were not immediately passed through in their contracts to even Bud Light's marketing missteps, which hurt their volumes when Bud Light lost market share. Um, but it can also be a cyclical downturn in the business's industry. You know, we bought stocks like John Deere, CarMax, and Texas Instruments, which are great dominant industry leaders, but we were able to buy them at great prices when their industries went through cyclical downturns. Uh, and then finally, there's there's always exogenous events um, that lead investors to throw the babies out with the bathwater. You know, whether it was the great financial crisis or or COVID when I joined Oakview. You know, Alphabet's a great business and it always was a very expensive stock, but during COVID, it got knocked down to a value price, a great price um, that gave us the chance to buy it. And many of our best opportunities they come from what we call double whammies where a couple of these factors, whether it's a company-specific speed bump in the middle of an industry downturn, where a couple of them come together at the same time. And you guys develop a thesis for each company and you do this research review. Um, and it sounds like you're likely to sell if the thesis is broken. How do you track the thesis for something that you own or that you don't own and that's on a watch list? Um, that's not changing as a management tries to alter the narrative. I've just seen like, especially when you when something hits a speed bump, right? Uh, there's always a story about, you know, what happened and it wasn't our fault and it was an industry thing. And like, right, there's, a, there's always a, a, like a, it, when things aren't going well, there's always a shifting narrative. How do you track those over time to figure out, you know, the kind of the signal from the noise? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the key for us is that we've discussed it ahead of time and we've written it down and documented it because memories can change over time and you know you, you have a lot of temptations to kind of change the thesis as you go along to fit what you're looking for. Um, but you know the, the key is having our work done ahead of time and having watched the company for a long time, understanding it, seeing it go through good cycles and bad, and knowing what are the key things that really make the the business tick. And so when you hit one of those controversies, you know, you can quickly categorize it into, okay, well, this, this is something that's temporary that doesn't really affect the core business fundamentals, or sometimes it can be something that completely changes the business fundamentals. You know, Disney had been on our watch list for a long time as a great business, 
But with the transition to streaming, they're investing a tremendous amount of capital to build out their streaming business. And at the end of the day, if they're successful, it's not really going to drive incremental growth in the business. It's more so it's going to replace the declining you know, cable affiliate fee business. And so that was something that really changed the dynamics of the entire business. And it was no longer a compounder in our opinion. And you guys have management as one of your, uh, one of the things you look like, look at in your checklist. I'm interested in, in how you view your role as a shareholder when it comes to engaging with management teams. Yeah, um, as Jeff mentioned, uh, we spend a lot of time reviewing management to make sure we're fully aligned. Uh, we look at stability in management. Uh, we look at consistency and strategy over time. You know, change in strategy is a classic red flag for us. Uh, and we look at alignment. You know, so we spend a lot of time in the proxy statements, uh, both on the front end of research and ongoing maintenance. And you know, we want to see companies that, that tie their long-term incentive compensation to metrics that we think drive shareholder value over time. The classic one for us is return on invested capital, because that's a core part of our investment process. And we think that is the most important metric to drive shareholder value over time. So when we, we screen it on the front end to make sure we're fully aligned, if we own something or if something's on the watch list and we see a deterioration in the management approach, which does happen from time to time, uh, then, then we will certainly dig in and pay attention. Uh, you know, when we see change in strategy, that's a big red flag for us or change in incentive compensation, which we saw two of those recently. And so in that scenario, uh, we're going to vote with our feet and sell the stock and move on to, to another great idea in our, in our watch list that, that has a much higher confidence checklist score and has full alignment. I think it's a good time to pivot a little bit and talk about the portfolio and portfolio construction um, and the strategy surrounding constructing that portfolio. From what I can tell, you've designed the firm to not be too constrained in terms of what you can invest in. Maybe you can talk about the size of companies and the geographies you typically focus on. Sure. Well, we do focus on the U.S. domestic markets. But beyond that, we've designed the firm to have the flexibility to invest anywhere we see value. And at my prior firm, I ran a very large mutual fund, and there were severe liquidity constraints on what I could own. My investable universe was only three to 400 stocks that had the market cap and trading liquidity that I needed. And we have a lot of our own money invested in the same fund here at Oakview as our clients. And we know there are riches and niches. And so we want to make sure that we, when we find a great idea, we can always buy it and make it a meaningful position regardless of the market cap and trading liquidity. And with a small team, you know, it can be difficult to cover, you know, everything from micro caps to mega caps. How have you structured the team and the process and, you know, create, you know, what does the process look like for creating a watch list that you can actually maintain well, you know, given that, you know, you're not, you don't have 30 analysts running around trying to, trying to figure out how to, how to, you know, we're keeping tabs on all of those companies. Yes. Well, the confidence checklist is key for us because that tells us specifically, I mean, it was designed with the intention of where have we had success before? And let's focus our efforts in those areas. And then where we haven't had success, let's make sure we're not wasting any of our time there. Mm -hmm. 
And so the confidence checklist is the way that we've structured, you know, where we spend our time. And when you get down to that universe of really great businesses, that's something that's manageable for Corey and I to cover. And I actually think that it's, it's better than having a team of 30 people where you might not have as tight an alignment in terms of what you're looking for and the way to do it between all 30 people than what Corey and I have, having created it together and having that commitment up front that this is the way we're going to do it. And so how does that wide mandate, what does that tend to look like? And, and maybe the average market cap or weight average market cap changes over time, given, given the environment, but what traditionally, what has that looked like? Do you, do you delve into smaller and mid names? Is it larger? Like what, where, you know, where, where does that kind of average market cap settle out? Corey, you want to take that one? Yeah. Um, over time, it's ranged. Uh, you know, I used to run a small mid cap fund at Westwood and we have invested in smaller cap companies over the course of 14 years here of history here at Oakview. Uh, frankly, we have not done well. Sub $2 billion mm -hmm. market cap has been an area of um, investment losses for us. And so uh, one of our sayings here, let's make new and novel mistakes, not the same ones over and over again. And part of our process in building the confidence checklist was, again, trying to get repeatable success over time, was that dominant industry business model uh, really leads us to these, these businesses that dominate their industries or share gainers over time. And so as a result, where we find most of our best ideas on the watch list, um, a lot of the new additions to the portfolio have been mid-cap and higher. Uh, we've had several businesses we've added to the portfolio that are in that $8 to $20 billion market cap range. Uh, CarMax is a good example of that. Fidelity National, Tidal, you know, 40% market share in the Tidal industry. So these are well-known uh, dominant industry leaders that are in that mid-cap space. Um, and as Jeff mentioned, we own Alphabet, we own Deer. So we do go up and down the market cap spectrum, uh, but I would think it's kind of mid and higher going and, forward. And you guys run pretty concentrated, 15 to 20 stocks. I'm curious how you settled on that as the right range of companies to own. Well, the, the academic studies would tell you that you get most of the benefit of diversification from a portfolio of 15 to 25 stocks. Now, we do have industry limits to make sure that our portfolio doesn't get too overweight one industry, but our core product is great stock selection. And so we want to focus on our best ideas rather than diluting our returns with too many stocks in the portfolio. You know, today the median mutual fund owns 80 stocks and we hold 15 to 20. Uh, I don't know which of our 15 ideas is going to be our best performer, but I, I'm pretty confident that our 15 best ideas should do a lot better than our 80th best idea. I, I also think that you must be very concentrated to do what we are doing. Um, we're trying to buy great businesses at great prices and great businesses just don't trade down to great prices very often. It takes a big controversy. Um, I don't think you can find enough of these opportunities to build an AV stock portfolio, but with work and patience, you can certainly find a portfolio of 15. And so once you have that 15 to 20 stock range, how does position sizing usually take out, shake out? Is it, you know, maybe what does the top 10 look like? Maybe, you know, give me just a sense of how, um, how high awaiting the biggest, the biggest positions typically 
occupy? Yeah, we use the confidence checklist score and our bare base bull frameworks. Uh, we yeah. join those together to instruct what the biggest position sizes of the portfolio should be. Uh, like Jeff said, we do have an industry cap at 25%. We also have a cap at 10% and a single position size. We measure that at average cost as opposed to market cap. Mm -hmm. uh, we think it's important to, to use average cost. We've seen other portfolio managers in the GFC, in particular in the bank stocks, that had 5% exposure in a bank stock, went down by 50%. They gross it back up to 5 Do that a couple of times, you end up losing 15% of your client's capital in one 5% position. So we certainly want to uh, make sure we're never so arrogant to, to make that mistake. So we, we cap single position, 10% at cost. Uh, the minimum position size is four. It's just a way to force us to go ahead and commit capital on the front end. We don't take small positions. We like to say that a 4% is on either on its way in the portfolio or on its way out of the portfolio. And you mentioned that you actually score the confidence checklist. I'm interested. I have tried to <laughs> quantify things that are subjective and qualitative and, uh, you know, with, I always approach that with a fair amount of trepidation because I don't want to be, you know, just like being just being too precise to actually have any value. How have you thought about like implementing a scoring system that, you know, doesn't doesn't risk focusing you on on things that are actually really hard to quantify and, and putting too, too fine a point on it? Yeah, I think the key for us is keeping it simple. You know, so we have those six metrics and all we do is a simple plus one, zero, minus one. Um, and we have specific questions that we ask ourselves. And so it comes down to, you know, yes or no uh, on those questions. And we also realize that nothing is set in stone, that things can change. Mm -hmm. And so it's a dynamic process. Um, I, I don't want to make it sound like we're, you know, too quantitative here, but we try to keep it very simple and use the confidence checklist to give us you know, a general idea of, is this a great business or is it an average or is it a poor business? And so you're playing in a space, let's call it eight to 25 billion in range, where there are plenty of people looking at these ideas. It's not like you're nano caps or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in what typically leads you to have a differentiated view, uh, sorry, a differentiated view of the earnings and cash flow potential of a company. Is it you just have a longer time horizon and, you know, you're looking out five or seven years and people are only looking out 90 days. Is there something else on top of that? I'm just I'm just interested in like what the you know, as you're, you're forming some kind of variant perception. What does that typically look like? Well, I think you have to step back. You know, a great business is only going to get cheap because there is a, a really big controversy. Uh, and of course, the market is pretty efficient, but it's efficiently run by humans. And so it goes back to the old bipolar Mr. Market analogy that humans tend to get too optimistic in good times and excessively pessimistic in bad times. And in bad times, you know, weak business trends tend to get extrapolated too far into the future when, when the research is being done in the middle of the controversy. I remember coming out of COVID when the theme parks business had been shut down and when we looked at the streets models for Comcast's theme park business, uh, they were forecasting that it would rebound in the long run to about the same $2.5 billion of EBITDA that it earned before COVID. But Comcast was investing a lot of money in expanding and opening new parks. And, 
And so today, you know, less, you know, a few years out, the theme park's EBITDA is already well over $3 billion and it's headed to probably something around $5 billion in the next few years. So one of our advantages is that, you know, we use the confidence checklist to do those reviews ahead of time rather than the recommendations in the middle of these controversies. And having that work done ahead of time just gives us a more balanced historical perspective to avoid some of those behavioral biases that can happen in the middle of the big controversies. But it can also be, you know, time frame arbitrage. That's something that we see a lot and that we think is structural in the markets because these big controversies can keep investors away if they have a portfolio manager or a parent organization or a client that is very focused on short-term performance. They just cannot own it if they think that the next quarter is going to be disappointing. And so we focus on trying to buy at the right price rather than at the right time. We set our price targets looking out three to five years and beyond that current controversy when things have normalized. And if these are great businesses and our valuation shows you know, a potential annualized return of 20% or greater, then we'll buy even if we think that the next quarter will be weak. Because besides, one of the lessons I've learned is that, you know, it's not what happens. It's what happens relative to expectations that drives the stock price. And sometimes all the bad news can be priced in and stocks go up when they report the bad quarter because the company's done something to, to manage through the bad times slightly better than what the market had feared. You know, we watched CarMax for a very long time as a dominant industry leader. And, you know, so we had understood the business, had the work done ahead of time. So when they reported really disappointing results in late 2022, because rising interest rates and elevated used car prices coming out of COVID made used cars less affordable, we were able to buy it on the day that it fell 25%. It was down 60% below its high. We knew they had several quarters that were not going to be you know, pretty in front of them, but we thought it was the right price. And as it turned out, you know, the macro environment has not improved, but the company has managed their operating expenses better than expected. They tightened up credit standards. So their auto finance credit losses have not been as bad as feared. And I could see a situation where there was a fine line between a short-term controversy that is not you know, not long lasting and some kind of permanent impairment that is, you know, more material. How have you navigated that issue that, you know, in the middle of a controversy might not be so clear whether there's been permanent impairment or not? What kind of, what kind of, is it, is it does it go back to your checklist? Does it go back to the durability of the business? How do you think about making sure that you're not stepping in front of something that is like the beginning of a secular decline or a major industry shift? Well, I think it goes back to the confidence checklist and making sure that it scores well on that. And then Corey and I both agree that what, you know, some of them are just too thin of a line between that. And we're not sure, we're not confident. The beauty of running a concentrated portfolio is we don't have to force ideas into the portfolio. We don't need that very many of them so we can really focus on our best ideas. But one of the, the key ones for us and looking in those situations is the control of destiny. You know, is the company in control of the key factors that we think will create shareholder value over the long run, regardless of what the issues are in the short term? 
like the agricultural equipment industry is a very cyclical industry, but we own John Deere and, and their brand and dominant dealer network and their lead in precision ag technology will drive market share gains and margin improvement over time that will create a lot of shareholder value. So, you know, when it was at the tail end of its ag recession in terms of the equipment business, and um, that was pretty clear to us that that was just a temporary cyclical downturn and not something that affected the core fundamentals of the business that were going to drive it in the long run. I'm interested in the topic of valuation. Um, we, we, you talk about looking three to five years out in your forecasting. Are you using DCFs? Are you using historical multiples, some kind of IRR calculation? How are you thinking about the proper uh, you know, risk reward profile for a company? Yeah, we model all of the companies in our watch list and our portfolio going out three to five years. Uh, we build a bear base and a bull scenario for all of them. Uh, when it comes to valuation, we use a, a historical lens on valuation, uh, try to go back, you know, multiple market cycles and look at different cycles for that particular industry as well. Uh, so we'll use uh, traditional valuation metrics like PE, EVD, EBITDA, uh, free cash flow yield, uh, price to book for certain uh, more uh, capital intensive businesses and, and look at a long range of how they've traded when uh, they're in times of stress and uh, then look more like average multiples over time for the base case and the upside. We're not trying to pick the absolute high uh, multiple to, to use as our target. Uh, we'd rather our upside come from earnings growth and ideally earnings growth that's, that's higher than what the street's baking in. And that's how you make, you know, more reliable alpha over time. Uh, we're not looking for some sort of, you know, multiple expansion to get us to our upside. Uh, ideally, it's an earnings growth driven story. The, the DCF approach is not used commonly here. It relies too much on the risk-free rate, which can change over time. We've certainly seen that change a lot in the last two years. Uh, and we don't use relative valuation either. Our goal is to generate superior absolute returns over time. So we do not use relative valuation. We've also uh, developed our own valuation tool that we use uh, here at Oakview. Uh, it's a, a valuation tool that ties ROIC together with value uh, valuation in a way that traditional valuation traditional valuation metrics do not. Maybe you can go into that a little bit. What what exactly does that mean? What metric are you using that other people may, you know, may not be familiar with? Yeah. So you know, like Corey said, we we look at a lot of the traditional ones, but we never felt like that really tied together. Our fundamental focus on buying a great business with our valuation discipline and waiting for a great price. You know, you could look at, say, EV to EBITDA, and you could say, well, this is a great business, so it's probably worth a premium, but how do you quantify that? So our investor return on capital framework, it starts with calculating the business's return on capital. And we're focusing on great businesses, so they should have high returns on capital. The businesses in our portfolio on average today generate a 24% return on capital. But the business's return on capital, it's not the return on capital that we earn as an investor in the business because investors are buying in at the current market price. And that's usually several times the historical cost of the business's invested capital. So we divide the business's return on capital by the multiple of invested capital that we're paying. So let's take a simple example a business generating a 20% return on capital and it's trading at two times and 
enterprise value to invested capital, then that 20 divided by two is a 10% return. And that's what we call our investor return on capital. We see that as the return that we are earning on our investors' capital by investing in the business at the current market price. And our goal is to make sure that the portfolio always has a higher investor return on capital than the broad market and other investment alternatives. We, we also see that as one of the three components of the total return that we will generate for clients over time with the other two being the growth in the business from that current return. And if you look at the long-term sales growth that we're projecting for our businesses, it's above the overall economy. And then third, you know, if we're doing our job right of buying great businesses, when the valuation is depressed because of a controversy, then as they get through this, uh, the valuation change should be a tailwind to our return over time as well. I want to dig just a little bit further into the bare base and bull case you use for each company, getting back to the false precision risk. <laughs> I've always, I've had trouble myself being like, all right, so there's a bear, the bull and the base, you know, is it a third probability of each? Is it 50, 25, 25? Like, how do you, how do you put, how do you put a probabilistic estimates on those weights without again, falling prey to some level of false precision? Yeah, we totally agree with you. We're, it's a fool's errand to, to think that we can accurately guess the probability of the different outcomes. Uh, so we want to guard against that. We use a very consistent uh, probability weight for the bear, base, and bull. So we use 30% for the bear, 50% for the base, and 20% for the bull. And that's simply to calculate our probability weighted IRR. I mentioned earlier, we use that along with the confidence checklist score to help influence the portfolio weighting decisions. Uh, but I think it's really important to note on the on the downside, our bear analysis, that's where we spend a lot of our underwriting. Uh, and we put a lot of emphasis on making sure that we understand the recession risk for the business. We understand the company specific risks, if the controversy that's that's weighing on the stock lasts longer or gets worse. We spend a lot of time understanding how does that impact margins, how does that impact the balance sheet, cash flow. Um, as Jeff said, we want to make sure we put time on our side. So it's critical to have a strong balance sheet make sure we're not diluted in that downside scenario. And so ultimately we're coming up with a bear price that we think represents a, a worst case scenario. Uh, we think about it in a 90% confidence interval. Uh, there's always gonna be something outside of that that we can't predict. Uh, an example is we bought Cisco Corp, the, uh, the largest restaurant distributor the week that the country shut down in March of 2020. So the stock had gone from, you know, it was cut by 60, 70% when we started buying the stock. And our analysis on the, the downside was, gosh, you know, it's well below a recession downside. So it's a buy. And, you know, it's well outside of the 90% confidence interval when we think about how long the restaurant industry and all the, you know, the entire country will stay shut. So we went and studied their covenants and said, how long can their customers stay shut before they trip covenants? And we came up with about 50 weeks. And so we said, you know, we're willing to make that bet. Um, the other thing on the downside is the way we build out our price targets. Uh, once we establish that downside, uh, we will not commit capital in a new investment unless it's got the stock has 30% or less downside uh, risk. So that's a key driver. Um, when you think about our watch list and looking at what stocks are close to our price target to where we can go ahead and commit capital, it's got to be 30% or less. We found over time that's a really good discipline to to keep and make sure that when we're when we make mistakes because we're going to make them, 
that we have minimized our permanent loss of capital. And, and that stayed pretty true over time. We've had very few companies in our long history that have that reached that downside. And jumping back into the probability weighted IRR that you calculate for the portfolio, is that something you track over time to determine how attractive a certain market environment is? Like a consultant or a, a, you know an allocator mm-hmm. comes in and says, you know, what is what does that look like now versus historical? Is that something you track? Because I think it would be indicative of how confident you guys are about the current environment that you're putting money to work in. We do track it. I, I would say we don't pay a, a tremendous amount of attention to it because we're bottom up uh, fundamental investors, but but we do notice it. Uh, we have found that when it's over 20%, we usually have a lot of buys signals flashing on our screen and in our spreadsheet. Uh, so it's somewhat instructive in that regards. It's in the mid to high teens today. Got it. And if listening to you speak and, and, and reading some of your materials, it appears that you guys are comfortable investing in companies in transition. And so I, I want to you know, double click on that word a little bit. Is that more about inflection point investing or will you get involved in something that looks more like a full turnaround? What we're looking for is a, a transition between a company being a great business, which then hits a speed bump or suffers a cyclical downturn and then recovers to a great business again. We don't rule out business turnarounds, but we do have a saying, turnarounds don't. So we set the bar very high. Uh, the key for us is that it still has to score very well on our confidence checklist. And, and we need clearly communicated data points that we can use to judge the progress of the turnaround because we hold these these types of turnarounds to a very short leash on their execution. But in terms of turnarounds, you know, a good example is we've owned T-Mobile for quite a while. You know, it was a, a laggard to AT&T and Verizon in the 4G world. But it became a leader in the 5G world with the best product at the lowest price because of the spectrum that it gained through the Sprint merger and management strategy of really aggressively rolling out that spectrum. So that was one that where the turnaround seemed clear and made a lot of sense to us. Another example is one of our recent buys, Dollar Tree. Uh, Dollar Tree had been on our watch list for a long time because we, we like the dollar store industry. The industry has a a very small share of overall consumer spending. And each time we go through a recession, more consumers tend to trade down to the dollar stores. And there's always a segment that stick with the dollar stores after the recession. And Dollar Tree, they own two businesses. They own the the Dollar Tree banner stores, and then they own the, the Dollar Tree banner stores. They've always been pretty well run, earn a solid return on capital. But then they also own the family dollar stores, and those have struggled. Uh, In early 2022, um, a guy that we consider to be a retail Hall of Famer CEO, Rick Dryling, joined the company, and he has a wonderful track record of having helped turn around Long's Drug, Dwayne Reed, Dollar General, uh, Lowe's. But at the time, Dollar Tree was trading around $170, and, and we thought $120 was a great price where we'd buy it, and as it turned out, you know, a tough retail environment, and then Dryling's heavy upfront investment spending to get the company turned around, eventually knocked the stock down to our buy price. And the Dollar Tree turnaround story is about, you know, it's already pretty well run, but I think that he can improve it. Uh, They finally moved off the $1 price point, despite the name of all the dollar stores. Uh, 
they were the only dollar store that was still stuck to the $1 price point, but they moved to $1.25 and they added three to $5 merchandise as well. That has created a lot of merchandising opportunities to help them grow same store sales. And then on the family dollar side, Dryling is, he's using the exact playbook at family dollar that he used to very successfully turn around dollar general. And so this is a pretty clear example to us of a management team that has the perfect skill set for what the business needs. And, you know, they've been, Dollar Tree has been trying to turn around Family Dollar for quite some time, but this is the first time that they allowed a CEO to really spend the money mm-hmm. to get the right infrastructure in place and, and get them back on track. And so far, early signs have been encouraging. Um, both brands, same store sales have been solid. They're gaining market share, but they, let, they laid out a lot of targets at their uh, June 2023 analyst meeting, and we've got those written down or, and are holding them to a short leash on hitting those targets. We talked a lot about portfolio construction and, and, and idea selection and kind of what, what is in the portfolio. It'd be interesting to talk about sell discipline. Maybe you guys can talk a little bit about why you typically sell an investment. Yeah, we have our own Hippocratic oath of value investing here at Oakview and, uh, you know, do no harm. And so we talked about protecting capital by the price we pay. Uh, another big one for us is the sell discipline of making sure that we are staying really, really tight on the fundamental investment thesis for our businesses. As Jeff mentioned, we write them down. Uh, we put them in our quarterly letters uh, in great detail. We think that that provides transparency for our investors and accountability for us. And then we track those, the, the fundamental performance of the business over time uh, to make sure that that, that uh, company is executing. So uh, for us, one of uh, the core tenets of the Hippocratic Oath of Investing is to admit our mistakes. Uh, we're going to admit, admit our mistakes early. And if the company is not executing the plan, if the thesis is broken, we are going to sell the stock. Uh, that's one clear lesson that Jeff and I have learned throughout our investment careers is that when the thesis is broken, uh, selling right away is uh, almost always avoids a more negative or adverse outcome down the road. So we do not wait for a higher price or a turnaround in the business. Once we've decided that it's broken, we're gone. Uh, you know, there can be other reasons to sell that are better reasons. You know, we're the company is, uh, you know, goes to a price that we've decided is all the growth that we expect is fully baked in. Um, that's obviously a great outcome. It can be hard then to part ways with a, a great business, but that's where having a robust watch list of uh, other great businesses that it might be a lot better prices is so important to the process. And when you're initially uh, getting into an idea, you talk about modeling three to five years in terms of the the projections, but what is, is that also the desired hold period? And I'm interested as well, like, well, how does that, how does that desired hold period uh, correspond to actual turnover in the fund? Yeah, we joke that the ideal hold period is one week or one day where you know, a private buyer comes in and takes us out at our ideal price, but uh, that, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, we're underwriting three to five years and we're, we're patient to wait for that. As Jeff mentioned, you know, a lot of times these great businesses, they sell down to these prices because there's some big overhang on the stock, whether it's company specific or uh, a cyclical um, controversy or 
uh, large debate. And so it can take time to work through those issues. And so we want to be patient. Uh, I, I would say our three to five year time frame generally lines up pretty well with our turnover, it tends to be in the low 30% range. Uh, there can be a range around that. Like I said, we're really strict on the cell discipline. If the thesis is not playing out, uh, we are going to sell it earlier. And so there will be times where, you know, obviously the whole period can be quite a bit shorter, but that's really comes down to how the company is executing versus our thesis. And then on the other hand, there could be businesses that I could see us owning for decades or more, unless the, the market drives the price up to a price that we really have no choice but to sell it. And then on the adding and trimming side, you said 4% is the stock that's either on its way in or the way, way out. Um, how, how have you thought about position sizing within that kind of 4 to 10% bucket that you guys, or that range that you guys have? What, how, does, how, how do things move around as stock prices change? And, and, and where do you think about adding versus trimming? Yeah, we, we use that probability weighted RR and the confidence checklist uh, to help instruct the, the position sizing. You know, so a 10% position is going to be highest score, highest confidence score, and the highest probability weighted RR. Um, new positions tend to start kind of in the 4 to 6% range. It really depends on what's happening at the time. Uh, we may leg into it um, in several chunks over time. And then we'll use that, you know, the pricing of the stock. We'll try to use volatility to our advantage to add to it when the stock is weak. Um, and conversely, when you know stocks are performing well and that IRR to our base, base case begins to narrow down, you know, we think if it's narrowing down to a, a high single digit range that now we're taking on market risk and uh, we'd rather rotate that capital into another better idea with a better uh, risk reward outcome. One of your benchmarks is the S&P 500, an index that has been hard to beat given the performance of the Magnificent Seven Given the weight of those companies in the index, do you feel like you have to have a view on all of them? You have to make an active sense of like, you know what? We're just not going to, we, we know Tesla is a big portion of it and we're just not going to own it because of X. Or are you really, is it, is it bottom, prod, the, the process so bottom up that you're not even, if Tesla doesn't, doesn't fit the criteria, you're not even spending any time thinking about it? Well, we see ourselves as stock pickers. And we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the benchmarks. You know, we're running a, we're not running a portfolio that tries to get a minimum exposure to every sector. And, and so it's truly just a best idea portfolio. What we want to make sure that we do is not miss an opportunity to buy one of those great businesses at a great price. And that's actually what we did with Alphabet uh, in March of 2020, when the stock fell sharply to what we thought was a great price for a great business during COVID. You know, we can debate whether the other six are great businesses. I think many of them are, but we just don't think that they're trading anywhere near a great price. Interesting. And you guys talk a lot about mistakes and learning from your mistakes. The confidence checklist seems like it's based on some of the mistakes you've made. Um, I'm going to ask two questions about that. The first is like, I'm interested in the kind of mistakes that that you made kind of brought more broadly that have manifested themselves in what the confidence checklist looks like today. Well, I think that when you look back at a lot of our mistakes, they were, you know, they were a lot of them were in some 
categories on the confidence checklist, like mm -hmm. control of destiny. Uh, we've not had a good track record of investing energy stocks. Um, and I mentioned, you know, the oil price can overwhelm the fundamentals of the company there. Uh, management alignment had been a problem for us before. Uh, we had owned an, a midstream MLP company uh, where the parent organization was able to manipulate the stock price and buy out the MLP um, at a price that was great for them, but was not good for the uh, shareholders of the MLP. And then I think the, the single biggest category of value traps that I've seen over time is, is just buying poor businesses, especially businesses that are declining. You know, we, we have said there's no price for rotten food. I think that even when those declining businesses get very cheap, it's, you know, those cheap valuations are just a mirage. The more time that passes, uh, you know, the, the more the value of the business goes down and, you know, Eastman Kodak looked cheap the whole way down its decline, but in 2012, it went bankrupt. And so in hindsight, it was, it was never cheap. And I always like to talk about individual mistakes. Um, I'll throw, I'll throw it maybe out to both of you. I'd love to hear about an investment mistake that has been so seared in your memory that it, it impacts the <laughs> way you invest today. Um, and if, yeah. and if it fits outside of those buckets that Jeff just mentioned, I, that'd be great also. Well, the, the biggest one that has really been seared into my mind was Teva pharmaceuticals. Um, I bought it because I thought that it was a dominant industry business model and that those advantages were durable. But just as we saw with T-Mobile, where it changed for the better, things can always change for the worst. Um, Teva had a, a low-cost manufacturing advantage. They were vertically integrated into the manufacturing of the raw ingredients for the drugs. And they had a big lead in, in what were called first-to-file generics that gave them some negotiating leverage with the managed care companies and the drug purchasers. But the, the low-cost advantage eroded as uh, Indian generic drug companies came to market with an even lower cost structure. The first to file pipeline shrank because we got near 90% penetration of generic drugs in the United States. There just weren't that many of them left that were material. Um, so it's made me really careful to avoid confirmation bias and always look for reasons that why a business that I think is dominant today might not remain dominant 10 years from now. Corey, what, what do you think of when I mentioned an idea that you're never going to, uh, that you made a mistake on that you're never going to forget? Yeah, I, I would go back to what uh, Jeff did refer to as energy stocks. We did have several losses, uh, probably in the kind of 16 through 18 time period, I think before, or maybe into 20. And Certainly instructed a lot of our lessons in the confidence checklist, control of destiny being the biggest one. When I look back at it, you know, there were, there were three or four investments that we did record permanent losses in. And uh, there was one in particular in my mind that was a smaller cap stock uh, that looked cheap. There was a mirage of a cheap valuation that stayed cheap for a very long time, ultimately sold it at a loss. Um, and I think, you know, while it was an error of commission recording a permanent loss in it, also, the lesson there was an error of omission because there was a lot of opportunity cost in owning that investment for a period of time, spending time on it, a lot of focus that goes into it. 
when there's other great ideas out there that we could have spent time on. And so I think that's the, the instructive lesson for me is that by building this confidence checklist, we have really narrowing our focus on these great businesses and just not spending time on these other businesses that don't, don't meet that, that high bar that we set. I'm a fan of all the structures and um, bias protection mechanisms that you've created and you put into the, to the um, process and the portfolio construction. I'm interested because we haven't really talked about the business uh, of investment management. I'm interested in what the prototypical or perfect kind of uh, investor or client looks like right now for you guys. Yeah, our client base uh, ranges uh, over half of it is institutional endowments and foundations, uh, family offices. Uh, you know, I think the common theme with those investors is that they're long term and they're patient. And uh, the investors that that partner with us tend to embrace, you know, process oriented investment approaches and believe in fundamental analysis. So, you know, we're always looking for like minded investors that think like us and you know, you can you can usually see, sense that pretty pretty quickly when you sit around a room together. But I think that it ranges too. We've got a lot of individuals and families that have invested with us for a really long time too, and and uh, we you know greatly value their partnership as well. And if we're having this conversation again in seven years, what would success at Oakview look like to you guys? Gosh, that's the the confidence checklist. The way we set it up. Uh, it, Jeff and I really believe in continuous improvement over time. And that was, that was, it was so fun doing the confidence checklist review when we started it four years ago, because we said, this is a really unique opportunity for Jeff and I uh, to do this assessment mid-career. And we hope to be doing this for, you know, investing together for another 20 to 30 years. And this template that we're building is, is a kind of living, breathing document that can change over time with new lessons. So hopefully they're new, uh, unique mistakes that we make over time, not the same ones over and over again. Um, but we're going to take new lessons uh, from successes and mistakes, build that into the confidence checklist. Uh, so seeing that evolve over time will be really important. Um, building out the watch list. When we think about our watch list uh, that Jeff and I uh, are constantly focused on as, as being the, the key driver for future performance for, the, for our investors. So uh, constantly looking for great businesses that fit our profile that we can add to the watch list and anticipate maybe some negative catalysts or controversies that might drive those stocks down to great prices that we can put capital into. Uh, if we do those things, then we think we'll continue to outperform like we have the last uh, four years. And in doing so, we'll be able to attract like-minded investors. Uh, we've built out a really institutional quality uh, platform here and uh we think we've got a repeatable process. So we do have room to grow. And I can imagine a scenario where the confidence checklist is leverageable uh, in other markets, right? Outside the US, you could, you know, maybe, you know, different market cap spectrums. Is that on the radar at all to have a multiple, multiple strategy firm or is have you kind of settled in on this is where we're really good. We want to concentrate in the U S where we're, where we, where we think we know the, the companies really well. How, how have you thought about um, kind of expanding the number of strategies you can offer to clients? Short answer is we have not because we have seen in our career that the, the single strongest pattern 
is that focus wins. You know, businesses that try to grow for growth's sake, they tend to just dilute the returns of the great business that got them there in the first place. And we have our own capital invested in this fund. We we want to focus all of our efforts on this one fund to make it the best uh, value fund that we can. Great. Uh, guys, this is this has been a wonderful conversation. I, I am a process driven guy, so I like I am I, I always enjoy people who build structures into their their process that um you know that especially like using you guys have a different lens on and use different metrics and other people. So I I think that's pretty interesting. So we'll close with a question we ask all of our manager guests: What is the most underappreciated aspect of the investment opportunity in front of Oakview today? Well, I think it's most important to understand what makes us different and what gives us our advantage. And it it clearly starts with our team. We've got a very experienced team. We've managed a lot of capital at our prior firms. And so we're a small firm here at Oakview, but we have big experience. And putting those two things together has a lot of advantages. Um, the second is you know, that we have the specifics of our confidence checklist, but I think even more importantly is the way we use it to do the reviews rather than recommendations and the way that helps us to protect um, from our own behavioral biases. And then finally, the you know, we do look at all traditional valuation metrics, but we go that step further with the proprietary investor return on capital valuation framework that we design to specifically tie together our fundamental focus of buying great businesses with our value discipline and waiting for a a great price. It sounds like you guys have created uh, a firm that has a repeatable process that um, probably sits and fits really well with a lot of different investors. So um, I'm certainly going to be curious to see how this evolves over time and, and, and how the firm grows. Jeff, Corey, thanks so much for being on Compounders. It was, uh, it was great to hear about uh, everything that you've built over the last four years together. Thank you, Ben. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thank you. It was great. Yeah, we own all the companies mentioned in today's podcast, except for Disney and Teva. Corey and Jeff mentioned a number of securities on this podcast. I do not own any of them personally. 